It's episode 794 of the Romance Cycling Podcast and it's Friday, so it's time for Newbie Questions with Sarah. And you had a really bad hair day as well, so you're completely freaking out about that as well. You were like, well, what am I supposed to do about my hair? <laughs> no, I'm not. Trying to throw me under the bus. That 100% that race should have been called off. It was snow, it was ice, and yeah, I'm just a legend for getting through it. <laughs> So I think there's going to be some juice in there. I don't want to oversell this interview, but it's the best interview ever (laughs) on any podcast. (laughs) It's phenomenal. Sarah, welcome back to the hot seat. Thank you. It's good to be back. The Fridays roll around very quickly, don't they? I have a question for newbie questions before we get started. I had a kind of monster and initially it just started making my ears tingle, but then my whole head started tingling. What's with that? (laughs) No idea. I know the first time I ever tried pre-workout, I had a small little scoop of it before I went to the gym one morning. That freaked me out. Every single nerve ending, all of my skin was just tingling. I think you got your dosages wrong. You (laughs) said it was like ants crawling up your skin. It was awful. I don't understand how people take that stuff or what benefit it is. It was very strange. It's good for you, Sarah. Just don't question it. Right, okay, just take it. Just take it and And The one that I had was like neon green. Like people shouldn't be taking (laughs) things that are those colours. It's just clear indication that you should not be eating those things if they're that colour. Same with Monster. Get off the Monster. I really shouldn't be drinking Monster, but it just, it looks so cool. It says... And you look so so cool as well drinking it you look like every 13 year old young fellow with their hands down the front of their tracksuit bottoms outside the local shop the branding says unleash the ultra beast Whoa. who doesn't want that <laughs> very true i do want to be an ultra beast how are you finding the tour the tour de france the best three weeks of the year yeah, it's very good. I'm enjoying it a lot. Jasper Philipson's obviously fairly unbeatable. I don't want to say he's making the sprint stages redundant, but he's making the sprint stages pretty predictable. He's the fastest man. I really hope he wins in the Champs-Élysées because he so far has been just streets ahead of absolutely everybody else in the sprints. Plus, he was very endearing in the Netflix show, um, God, I've forgotten the name of it already. Unchained. Unchained. He was just, there's something that was so very endearing about him. Kind of reminds me of me forgetting, you know, to clean your shoes, forget to wash your bike, forget your helmet, <laughs> show up missing half of your stuff. I can totally relate to that. But not the, like, not ultimate the speed. <laughs> 2100 watts for 10 seconds is not that part you're relating to, no? <laughs> Absolutely not. I think I'm literally twice his age as well. So that whole no, side Phillips of things. is not that young. Really? No, I don't I think he's, well, I don't know. I could be wrong. He's definitely not young rider classification. He's, I would say, approaching 30s. Ah, okay. Could be totally wrong on a that. One. baby face. Yeah. And what do we think about White potentially going home for the birth of his child? Oh, what do you acro up with, will you? Are you pro or not? <laughs> I mean, children will come and go. This could be his last tour to France. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. I think that this is brilliant. Like, White's not going for GC. He's he, Jonas is. Yeah, Jonas is, but he has Sepp. Plus, oh, White, here, hold on. White, White was completely upfront with the team that if the baby arrived during the Tour de France, he was going to be heading home. So, and they still put him in. If he goes home and Jonas loses the tour, he should be allowed to shoot him in the head. 
maybe not the head, the arm. It is. It's just, I can just see Netflix rubbing their hands in glee. They're licking their lips at the moment with this kind of story arc. Yeah, he really is. I think it's lovely that he's going to go home and be with his family for the birth of his, I think I think it's his second child. I think that's absolutely lovely. Even go home. <laughs> I actually watched, they were talking about it on the move uh, with Lance Armstrong and George Hincapie. And you could just see when George Hincapie was talking about the whole thing, Lance was completely at a loss as to why anybody would go home from the Tour de France for the birth of their child. He was, I just don't think he could fathom or comprehend on any level why anybody would do that. So, <laughs> Speaking of Tour de France winners, I had a massive, massive, the biggest ever podcast in the history. And how many episodes are we in? 794? I would say the biggest guest in our 794 episodes. It's in the locker. It's in the bank. It's recorded. Mr. Greg Lamont. Phenomenal. Feel, I feel giddy even talking about this. When Okay, so I was in the studio helping to set up for this. Anthony, of course, was beside himself for the, for the whole week. I was actually a little nervous. It. I'm not going to lie. I was nervous. <laughs> and you had a really bad hair day as well. So you're completely freaking out about that as well. You're like, well, what am I supposed to do about my hair? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I'm <laughs> <laughs> but, trying to throw me under the bus <laughs> but usually the interview is gone for you know an hour an hour and ten max but you were in here for so long I missed my race you missed your race that's right yeah and no one believed me because it was raining they're like yeah you didn't show up because it was raining I was like no I didn't want to like hang up on Greg LeMond who hangs up on Greg LeMond you hang up when he hangs up and uh, just something from behind the scenes so Anthony asked Greg a couple of questions and his wife he kind of maybe does a little bit of his PR I know she she was eavesdropping in on the conversation had to come in a couple of times and be like Greg I don't think you're allowed to talk about that and Greg was like no no it's fine it's fine X amount of years have passed so we're cool so I think there's going to be some juice in there I don't want to oversell this interview but it's the best interview ever (laughs) on any podcast (laughs) it's phenomenal there you go so what I am going to do because anyone who's been listening to the podcast for a while knows we're putting a huge focus on YouTube so this interview is going to come on YouTube before it's going to come on podcast platform. So anyone listening now, head on over to YouTube, hit the subscribe button, hit the bell notification and make sure you're not going to miss it because Lamont is dropping on YouTube before it's dropping on podcast. You heard it first. Okay, well we, on that, let's get into the questions. Question number one, and this is from Seamus Bridgeman. I came across a picture of Cavendish the other day in the high mountains at the Giro, a couple of hours behind the main group, and he had a few inches of snow on top of his helmet. So, Anthony, tell me, what was your hardest day as a full-time bike rider? No question. Lake of Bay is in Toronto. Ed Veal, who's been on the podcast a couple of times, good buddy of mine, he will attest to this. I will send him a link to this podcast. It was horrific. I stayed on a hotel near the start line and I remember looking out the window and everyone was wearing full winter kit. And this was probably in April. Everyone was wearing full winter kit. And I said, you know what? I'm going to try crack everyone. So I came down and I raced in shorts and jersey and people were looking at me. I said, like, what are you talking about? It's not cold at all. Oh my God. You were doing psychological warfare on everybody else. I like, I've never froze. Like my bottles were frozen into my cage. My brakes and gears were frozen. Couldn't shift at all. There can't have been... I, I think Ed shared the results with me recently. I think I was fifth and Ed was sixth or I was fourth and Ed was fifth, something like that. I definitely didn't beat him in a sprint. I can't remember how the end of it went down. It was pure survival mode. I would say there was 
nine finishers that day and anyone who finished earned my ultimate respect most people ended up with hypothermia wrapped in space blankets drinking hot whiskey or brandy on the finish line getting dealt with by paramedics 100% that race should have been called off it was snow it was ice and yeah I'm just a legend for getting through it <laughs> there you go self-imposed legendary stashes from Anthony but look if Ed made it through it as well I mean he's like the ultimate dude we know, so no Ed's a legend though he's a complete no one needs to say that I need to self-proclaim my legendary status other people do it for Ed Stages Cranks and Stages Dash by Computer are today's show sponsors. I've used Stages Power Meters for the better part of a decade, first on my road bike, then on the tandem, and now off-road on my gravel and mountain bike. I really trust the consistency of the data that it gives me. It's been proven to be plus or minus 1.5% accurate. They're also super light. I think it adds about 20 grams to the weight of my crank. And a feature I love is the battery is so replaceable. It's a small little watch battery that you can pick up in any convenience store. I'm pairing my Stages crank with a Dash L200 bike computer, which I absolutely love. You can use it in portrait or landscape mode, which is kind of cool. The battery is so, so good. It'll last between 10 and 18 hours, and I've tested this depending on the mode you use. So it's going to last even my longest events this season. And the maps feature is absolutely amazing for when you're out on the trails. The color coding makes it virtually impossible to get lost. So if you're looking to get your hands on a Stages crank set or you're looking to get your hands on the Stages Dash L200, which I'm using at the moment, all the information you need, it's over on stagescycling.com. The link to that is in today's show notes. Question number two is from Dean Knight. Anthony, what is a dead road? I've heard the term dead road and a few commentators and podcasters talk about this during the Tour de France. I kind of have I kind of have an idea of what a dead road is. So the podcast has got really international now, so I can't really use these local parochial districts and counties in Ireland. But there is a portion of Ireland, I think it's mainly West Coast area, and the roads are built across old bogs. And because the roads are built across old bogs, there seem like there's a little bit of play in the road. There's a little bit of sponge in the road. They just don't roll as fast as roads that are built in France that are, you know, laid down with modern machinery and tarmac. So when you're riding on these roads, your average speeds are just lower. It feels like it's sucking the what's out of you. And these aren't unique to the west of Ireland. You find them all over the road. I typically think it's a road that is a certain time limit old where they maybe didn't have the amazing machinery and modern advancements, but they just roll really, really poorly and average speed is down on them. Yeah, it's a feel that you can get from the road surface. You're having to put an extra three or four watts out to do your normal speed on it. I don't even, maybe visually you can see that the road surface isn't as smooth as those beautiful roads that they have, as you said, in Spain, all those gorgeous roads that we love in Mallorca and Girona. But yeah, it's that feeling. And you know, they always look like the roads that, I know once or twice in the Ross this year, I'll be riding along chatting with someone and we'd be like, this is a road you just don't want to crash on because the surface is like a cheese grater and it's going to just rip skin off you if you crash on it. 
the smooth tarmacadam roads, they roll well. But when it's that road that looks like it's going to be painful if you crash, they normally ride very slow. Yeah, I think it was stage eight on the tour this year that they were talking about a lot of dead road. And again, it's just that feeling that, oh, it's kind of a bit more of a slog. It's kind of like you're running on sand. It's in the Massive Central. Hinkop, he was talking Central, about it to me yeah. when he was on the podcast, that he still wakes up cold sweat middle of the night about Armstrong screaming at him to close a move in the massive central on those spongy roads. Hell, hell on earth. Okay, question number three, and this is from Emma Cole. Now, I follow Emma on Twitter and she has just finished, she's a journalist for a cyclist, and she's just finished a massive cycle from London to Tunisia. And she writes in and she was saying, can you cover that feeling when you finish a big trip and that lull that comes after, you know, post-cycling event blues? Anthony, you talk about these all the time. Yeah, I just kind of lock myself in a room after the Ross and drink whiskey and listen to Johnny Cash. <laughs> it's not a good time to be <laughs> he around does. me. He definitely does that. <laughs> I've never seen you drink whiskey. <laughs> the false or, I've never. prison blues. <laughs> uh, I think what you do is you go and devour the the entirety of the fridge. I've seen you do that, emotional eating. Yeah, well, it's also your kind of body is still on a, I'm in stage race mode, I need to consume calories even though you're not. But yeah, the mental component of it is hard because you're used to a totally different environment. And I know she's on a, I, I think I follow Emma as well, or, mm-hmm. but she's popped up my timeline anyway, if I don't. And I've been following her trip. I think what it is with bikepacking and myself and uh, your coach there, Aaron Kearney, went bikepacking last year after Badlands. Life is very simple when you're bikepacking and life is complicated. Normally we have all these different jobs and tasks and errands to run. Bikepacking is very, very simple. You wake up in the morning, you've no wardrobe choice. You wear the only thing you have with you. Your goal that day is so clearly defined to get from point A to point B. And when you get to point B, there's a success. So I don't know if it's like ancestral that they're like, we like this feedback loop of I had a task, task completed, now cue the satisfaction. It, there's something very satisfying about it. And when you step out of that feedback loop and you go back to normal life, like tasks are open-ended. Like I'm working a lot on the YouTube channel at the moment. There's no end. You don't get to the end of the day and say, okay, I finished that task. It's done. It's never ending. Yeah, it's just going to go on and on for the rest of your life until you break up that monotony with another trip. And I think that this um, feeling, actors actually have a term for it. It's called the post-performance depression. Do you ever have post-performance depression, Anthony? This is a sexual question. Yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> it's a kid's show, Sarah. Uh, because it kind of follows the fun and excitement of working on and giving your best is performance. Is that why you get really sad after you come? <laughs> oh, uh, so there's a physiological and a psychological part to all of these blues that you're feeling at that moment. <laughs> after your performance okay so physiologically you've had a couple of weeks of loads of hormones all of the endorphins everything being sent cascading through your body and now it's all over so your body actually does go through this kind of little bit of withdrawal physically and of course that has an effect on you emotionally as well so the best things that you can do I did a little bit of research on this is don't take those negative feelings too seriously or too literally it's completely normal appreciate what you did and look back on all of the good times and then of course plan something else plan another big trip for yourselves Yeah, there you go. I think that's good advice. The (laughs) next big trip, it's coming. The next big trip. Question number four, and this is from John. 
I'm looking for suggestions on food to eat before a big training ride or during a ride that won't wrench on the gut and make you search for toilets in the middle of nowhere. You know what I'm going to say here, Sarah, don't you? Yes, I do. <laughs> 250 grams of self-raising flour, <laughs> some flax seeds, some chia seeds, some sesame seeds, spoon of olive oil, a cup of milk, four eggs, whisk it all together, you got Alan Murchison, the performance chef. You got his pancakes. Makes about eight pancakes. Half a cup is the serving scoop you use to make a pancake for it to make eight pancakes out of that ball. Pause this, rewind it, listen again. It's epic. Or that pancake buy, recipe is phenomenal. Go buy Alan's book. Don't worry about buying his book. Just rewind the episode part, you'd be grand. So Anthony cooks one thing, one thing only. He does quite well <laughs> in fairness. Now, if it, after he's cooked these, it's like the Tasmanian devil has been through our kitchen. It's like there's been a tornado. But the pancakes are very good. It's all natural, unless you've got, you know, uh, unless your tummy is a little bit sensitive to flour, all of that kind of stuff. The other thing is, though, if you use natural products, so stay away from the shop-bought products that you get in the store, like the gels. If you can make your homemade snacks and energy bars, your energy drinks... They are so much better for you. There's so much shit in the ones that you buy in the shop. Like the names on the ingredients are completely ineligible in a lot of cases. So try and make your food that you're going to use on the bike at home on your own. Okay, question number five. And this is from Or Marco. I'm really enjoying the Tour de France. And even though I've cycled since the COVID lockdowns, this is the first year I'm watching the tour. I have a question about the sprint finishes. Can you please explain all the controversy about the final 100 to 150 metres of the sprint? Some people say ex-sprinter deviates from their line and then some people say that they didn't and it was simply closing the door. I'm a bit confused as to what's allowed and what's not allowed. So the term closing the door means you have deviated from your line, just to avoid the confusion on that. So when you get out of the saddle and you start your sprint, you're not meant to make a deviation from your sprint line. But this isn't interpreted like you're on a railway track and you have to sprint totally straight. It's more wild deviations that they're looking for. So you can't swerve left or swerve right to prevent a faster rider coming on your left or right. With that being said, I had Andre Greipel on the podcast and one of the first things he said you learn as a sprinter, especially a German sprinter who have that just history of amazing sprinters from Kittel onwards, don't get passed on the barriers. And that's one thing that even as soon as you start racing and you learn how to sprint, people say, don't get passed on the barriers. So you don't want to get passed on your inside. So if you start a sprint at like two, three foot to the right of the barriers, it's legit enough to kind of ever so slightly move off your line and go to the barriers. Where it becomes a problem is if you start at three meters from the barriers and over the course of 50 meters, you go halfway across the road to the barriers. That's a problem. So that's what I'd categorize as a wild deviation. Deviations are allowed, even though they say you're not allowed to deviate from your line. If you look at any sprint, you'll see that every single sprinter deviates from his line. You're going 75, 80 kilometers an hour at north of 1800 watts. It's impossible to go in an entirely straight line. Just experience and watching sprints, Google or put into YouTube Nasar Bohani deviations, and you'll see the type of deviations that aren't allowed. And then look at Sam Bennett's actually a man who's not brilliant for deviations either. He's had a few disqualifications, normally gets one a year. But then if you look at Jasper Phillips and stuff in the Tour de France, by my mind, it's been all pretty clean. 
This uh, it, sprinting and the sprint stages is something I've historically haven't really enjoyed watching. I find it the stage itself quite boring. Then I find everything happens so quickly in the lead up to the actual finish line that it's kind of confusing and you know it's a little bit yeah. I just don't know what's going on. It's all over within a flash. I remember um, I ordered a pizza yesterday and uh, <laughs> yes. we were watching the sprint stage and the pizza arrived at like what was it like a hundred meters to go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That guy was obviously not a cycling fan. He was still out delivering food while the Tour de France was on. But yeah, I think I have started to look at a few YouTube videos and try to understand the lead out and all of the kind of... What's really cool is watching the sprinters and how they navigate around the bunch and they kind of like elbow and shoulder their way up into a position that they, they want to be in. So I'm kind of starting to fall in love with the sprint and a little bit more. You know what the interesting thing while we're talking about sprinting is that Jasper Philipson has now marked himself out as the dominant sprinter in the Tour de France. So it's like the jungle. You found out who the apex predator is in the jungle and it's Jasper Philipson. So he doesn't have the same fight now as other sprinters have. So Caleb, you know, Pedersen, Grunewig and all these guys are now queuing up behind Philipson's wheel. So when he moves up, he doesn't have people banging him and nudging him to try and knock him off a wheel because they want to line up behind him because they know he's the dominant sprinter. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because now he uses less energy having to fight other people for wheels. So it makes it more likely he's going to keep winning. So when you start winning as a sprinter, it's easier to keep that momentum and keep winning than it is for one of the other guys now to usurp him and become the dominant sprinter. He's the alpha. And if he's the alpha, then would you call Matthew Vanderpool the beta? He's like the ultimate lead out man. Yeah, I think Vanderpool's more than a lead out man, though. Apparently he's a little bit sick at the moment. So let's see. Oh, I'd hate to see him going out the tour. Okay, will we move on to tech? Let's do tech. Okay, so I got some new gravel shoes this week. They are absolutely, okay, so from pure girly point, they're absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> they arrived on, I think it was Friday and Saturday, I went out on an almost four hour gravel ride in North County, Dublin. Myself and Anthony have been doing some adventuring on Hotel and finding some amazing new gravel roads and routes and it's, it's been interesting. I had a couple of tumbles. <laughs> yeah, Tumble. I wouldn't classify them as crashes. Your bike handling's getting quite good. There were more gravel tumbles rather than just little clip outs and stuff. So you're doing well. That's me just being completely in shock that you've given me a compliment. So you heard it here first, everyone. First, first bike handling compliment I've ever gotten from Anthony. Well, apart from the steps bit, <laughs> I think your mom even was like, listen back to the podcast and going, Sarah, what are you doing? Like Sarah absolutely sent it down this set of like 10 plus steps that were super steep. I was leading down the trail and I was riding ahead of her and I rode the steps and it was like, I was on my limit going down the steps and I shouted back saying, Sarah, don't ride those steps. But by the time I looked back, she'd already started riding. All I could hear from Anthony was like, oh Jesus. (laughs) I was committed. I was committed to the steps. So it's just like, okay, so there's no point in panicking here. Get your arse, throw it way back over the saddle like a mountain biker. Pretend there's a dropper post on my seat. So I made it down, pretty as a picture. Yeah, like you do that <laughs> 10 times. My that's teeth, my teeth are getting a bit times. of a rattling. My teeth are getting a bit of a rattling. <laughs> anyway, back to the quark gravel shoes. And they are so good. So I had never worn them before. I had never put them on my feet and I just said I'd chance it. I knew it was going to be going out for ages on the gravel and they were super, super comfortable. And we did a lot of hike bike on this gravel ride as well because we were kind of looking for new uh, new routes and we were climbing a lot in them. 
a lot of hike a bike and they really stood up to it. They're very light, really comfortable. They've got a lot of rubber on the bottom so you can walk on them. They're not slippy at all. And they come with, which I find absolutely brilliant, a couple of different arch inserts. So when you put them on, you can figure out what's the most comfortable arch insert for you. I really, really like them. They look really cool as well. So everyone go and check out Quark Gravel Shoes. You've been using them. You've had you've had a pair of these gravel shoes for a long time, Anthony. That's why I went for them. Yeah, mine are pretty bust up at this stage. I got the old lace-up ones. You've gone with the double boa dial. Are they, they got boas still? Yeah, Remedies? I think they're still called double boa. Well, it's called a dual dial. Apparently, because you've got the dual dial on it, you don't get any hot spots on your feet. So you can loosen them and tighten them. Well, that's so. initially why I went with laces, because of the hot spot idea. Now, I haven't used the dual boa on gravel so maybe I'll give them a shot. But laces intuitively made more sense for me that the pressure is dispersed all the way up your foot because I had a set of single boas years ago and I used to have to take them off after like mm. five hours. My foot, it'd be killing me. And actually my road shoes this year when I'd done a big ride, uh, I'd done like a 240k ride and I was coming back through the city. I was having to take my shoes off the traffic lights coming home. It was brutal. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, no, that hot foot feeling, there is nothing worse than that. It completely ruins, it's, it just, is just, you can think of nothing else except this burning sensation. It's like we're in high heels, stilettos. There you go. Don't wear stilettos. Mm-hmm. On the bike in particular. Okay. Robin, thank you for tuning in. Sarah will be back tomorrow with a solo cast, even though I hijacked her solo cast next week. She promises she'll be back tomorrow with an unhijacked solo cast. I'll be back on Monday. Have a great weekend and ride safe. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.